Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Read Aloud. Thanks so much for coming out on a rainy day, and I'm sure you'll be glad you did because we've got a wonderful program coming up. Um, we've got two professors from the Department of English, Aaron McGraw and um, Andrew Judge, Judge Hudgens. Pardon me. And um, they're each going to read from one of their recent books. Um, there are coffee cups in the back. If you would like to help yourself to tea or coffee, please do so. And otherwise, um, just relax and enjoy the readings. All right. How are we on sound? We good? More. More sound. Much more. Way more sound. All right. <laughs> uh, as Donna said, thank you for coming out on a rainy afternoon. It's good to see you. Hi, Jason. Haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> I'm going to read from the opening chapter of my latest novel called The Seamstress of Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, it's based on the life of my father's mother, my paternal grandmother. And as I was working on this book, my father was insanely excited that I was writing this. He was out of his mind. And he, uh, he did read the book, but he died two days before it was officially published. And so I, I start my readings with a shout out to dad. But, uh, he likes that. And all you need to know is that we are set in 1899 in Kansas. Do I have any Kansans in here or anybody who's got family in Kansas? Good. <laughs> I couldn't cook, but I could sew. It would have been better the other way around. Luelle Morrissey had a face like a mud hen's backside, but everybody in Mercer County knew that she could make a good meal even at the end of winter, when there was nothing left in the root cellar but tired apples. Folks talked about Luelle's knack for food, and at church socials, her pies were bid up past $3. A good cook is good value, said Ordell Reitzbaugh, one of three ranchers, courting her. By the time I was nine years old, I could sew a straight seam, and at 15, I could make a hem stitch that no one could see, but nobody assigns value to what he can't see. I didn't have the right mind for putting meals on the table. Staring into the crusty frying pan and waiting for onions to color, I got bored. Hot and itchy, I would stroll out to lean on the garden fence and look at the dim horizon as if it might have changed in the last ten minutes. The flat dirt, gray brown, the flat of the sky, gray white, and behind me the onions burned. At night, Pa poked his fork at my stew, lumps of flour floating next to the shingles of black onion. If we auctioned you, you wouldn't bring in as much as a mule, he said. More than chickens, though, I said. How many chickens? A dozen, easy. I am good value, I said. For somebody who already ate, he said. Meals would have gone better if he'd just let Mama or one of my sisters cook, but he had ideas about things, and Tuesdays were my cooking days. He thought I'd learn. My family in the hands, the years we had hands, learned to avoid dinner on Tuesdays. Me, I was skinny as a whip and could get through the daylight hours on an apple. No matter what Paul would admit, I had my value. I could weigh a spool of thread in my hand and tell if it was rotten at the center. I could stitch a buttonhole in brand new denim, and I could mend a tear so that it blended right into the cloth around it, invisible even in church, when the eye needed something to rest on. There were other values. I was good with people, unlike my shy sisters. When Ernold Brown, who had already put two wives in the ground, twitched and snuffled his way up to Nassim Potter after church service, I saw that he was fixing to marry again. I hiked all the way to his place with a bunch of cone flowers he could give to Nassim. He gave me a nickel, the first coin I didn't have dropped on the cup and 
and I had sense enough not to tell Pa about it. I was smart about Pa, too, and I could judge when he had drunk one glass of whiskey too many and was itching to hit something. My doughy sisters never learned to clear out of his path, but I could smell a beating was coming the same way that a person can smell rain. That's bad-looking leather, he'd say, looking at a patched harness. Cheap. Everything about it looks cheap. Then he'd raise his head and say, it's not one thing worth a tinker's dam on this place, or in this county, or in this state. The fury would sweep over him like storm clouds. Folks knew him as a joke teller, but he wasn't always amiable, and his jokes could turn rough in a hurry. Even Mama, so dim she never seemed to recognize anything, said Pa and I were cut from the same pie. Like him, I was restless all the time, ants under my skin, and a day spent plowing would leave me fretful with wanting something I couldn't put a name to. The prairie's rough grass surrounded us like a belt that kept out soft fabrics, sweet-smelling pillows, anything that might ease a life. No wonder Pa drank. When I trudged out to the barn, my eyes cut over our paltry 160 acres of wheat the same way his did. Everyone around us was buying up acreage before land prices went up again. Soon, ours would be the smallest farm in the county. It didn't need to be so. Pa could have borrowed money to expand. For pity's sake, the bank was loaning money to the PECs, who hadn't met a payment in five years. The manager would have loaned to us. But Pa looked out to the west, toward what he didn't own, what nobody owned. He didn't want more of what he already had. He was squinting at the fence line when I came up to him one afternoon. He'd put his hat aside somewhere in the back of his shirt bunched up out of his trousers. The man was careless, shedding things wherever he went, shoes and papers and tobacco. Mama spent her life looking, picking up his litter. Myself, I would have let it lie. Feller dies and goes to the seat of judgment, he said, eyes trained on the blurred horizon. He didn't even look back to make sure it was me he was talking to. Jesus said, you've got yourself a bad record. You've cheated, stolen, lied. You're going to have to go to hell. Feller falls down at the feet of the Lord. He cries and begs for mercy. It's true that I didn't lead a good life, but I wasn't all evil. I cared for my mama and gave to the poor. I gave money to your church. The Lord softens. All right, he says, I'll take mercy on you. You can start again, homesteading in Kansas. Feller stops crying, looks up at the face of the Lord. Is that spot in hell still open? Dare you to tell it to the preacher, I said. Not everybody wants to hear the truth, he said. Preacher says only the gospel is truth. This is a different gospel, Pa said, for those who have ears. Dare you to tell it to the visiting preacher. He's coming to dinner. Ma sent me out to fetch you. You're not cooking, are you? It's Thursday, I said. My sister May's turn. Lucky for him. Mama wants you to wear your Sunday shirt. Bad is going to church, he said. If I have to wear my Sunday shirt in my own house, maybe I will tell him my joke. He didn't get a chance, though. Reverend Farley had jokes of his own, the one about the lamb and the peacock, the one about the squirrel who went to Bible camp, the one about the three ministers who went to heaven. After a while, we stopped forcing ourselves to laugh, since our laughter made no difference to the reverend. While May's good pot roast hardened in front of him, he planted an elbow on either side of the plate and said, Man finds himself at the pearly gates. The Lord says, Son, it's your day of reckoning. You lived a bad life. You smoked, you drank, you didn't do right in business. There's only one place for you to go. We know this one, Pa said. Reverend Farley didn't even pause. The man says, remember when I saved that widow? Remember when I ran into the burning house and snatched up the baby? Doesn't that count for something? The Lord nods. You're right. Those things count for something. You can go to Wichita. The man says, remember that $100 I stole? Into the quiet around the table, Pa said, we tell it different. I imagine so. Everyone loves this one in Texas. Mama got up a smile and shook her head. You're a regular theater. 
Do you come from Texas, I said. Girls in Mercer County didn't talk at table, and Pa's glance was sharp. I travel to my little station, not sure I'm where I come from. I know where I'm going when the Lord tells me to hang up my spurs, though. You're not wearing spurs, Pa said. Where, Reverend, said polite Mama. California, heaven on earth. I don't imagine that's part of your circuit, said Pa. I was ailing for a time, and I went to Los Angeles to recover my health. I don't mind telling you I'd go back, even if it meant falling sick again. What ailed you, Pa said. Tell us about California, I said at the same time. I could see that my chatter was nettling Pa, but he wouldn't lay a hand on any of us before company. Reverend Farley put on a sharp smile that didn't look right on a preacher. If California is not the promised land, it's the closest we'll see in this life. To walk in an orange grove is to be in Eden. The air smells sweet and tangy at the same time, and the leaves shine, and the oranges all but push themselves into your hands. Have you ever eaten an orange? Pa said, we see a few luxuries. We're not poor. Your mouth tingles, but the fruit is sweet and so quenching you imagine you'll never be thirsty again. The flowers are tiny, but they put out a powerful scent. And then, they get, and then you get to the end of the grove, and the next thing you see is the ocean crashing onto sand. Salty soil kills most plants, Pa said. Guess your orange trees are different. Reverend Farley made a brushing motion. Maybe not exactly at the end of the grove, but close. What does it look like, I said. Reverend, there were talking which amazed us all. He looked around the kitchen, eyes skidding over the freshly blacked cook stove and the magazine pictures Mama had put up on the walls, over the hard dirt floor and the pie safe with the weeping willow punched into its tin door. He picked up a white enamel pot lid with a blue rim and said, hold this close to your eyes. When I held it up, he said, closer, until the edge of the lid was practically in my eye. What do you see, he said. The blue is wobbly and then there's white over it. That's all. That's close, he said except it's beautiful. I like the land myself, Mama said. I like seeing where I stand. Would you care for some pie? I kept staring at the lid. What I saw, the blur of blue into white, wasn't beautiful, but I could imagine it turning beautiful. I probably looked like a pure fool, staring at a pot lid as if it was a magazine picture, but the minister had given me something that I didn't understand. There was nothing of Kansas in that blue line. After May's dried apple pie, Reverend Farley put down his fork and announced, now that was cause for Thanksgiving, the first churchy thing he'd said since giving the blessing. I put on a pleasant expression, planning to think about oceans while he talked about salvation. Pa looked sour. But Reverend Farley kept unsettling us. He reached into his shirt pocket and pulled out a harmonica. The first song he played was Amazing Grace, which we none of us sang well. And after that, he started on a tune I'd never heard, Sweet and slow, it had a clean ache, and I studied the tablecloth so no one would be able to see my wet eyes. Mama joined in, her low voice true. Oh, Shenandoah, I long to hear you. Look away, you rolling river. She sang only when she felt moved. Sometimes years would pass. But when she opened her mouth, we all hushed. Suddenly the air was rich, and so it became poor when she stopped. That's no church song, Pa said when the last note was still hovering. It can be, Reverend Farley said. How? Pa said. It's about having to go away. It's not what you want to do, but it's what you have to do. I said, why does somebody have to go away? Me? I heard a call, Reverend Farley said. What about somebody who's not a reverend? I said. Nell, Mama said. What does a call sound like? I said, heedless as a chick. It wasn't Mama who would hurt me. She could barely lift her hand to beat biscuits. Reverend Farley said, Two Episcopalian ministers arrive at the same church with the congregation there waiting. It's a big church. Folks are well-dressed. There are fine carriages outside. 
The first one says to the other people in church, I heard a call. I don't know what those people are doing. I heard a call too, says the second preacher. What did yours say? Lo, I will make you a leader of nations. What did yours say? No one ever lost money on hog futures. Preach on, cried the congregation. Pa snorted. Myself, I'd never seen an Episcopalian. I said, I don't think anybody gets called to Kansas for money. Nobody's got any. Reverend Farley said to Pa, she's the spit of you, isn't she? Her bad luck, Pa said. <clears throat> Reverend Farley stayed in town for a week, but we didn't go to hear him preach past the first day when everyone went. I didn't want to see any more of the man. He left me feeling rumpled, and even if I wasn't fool enough to repeat the experiment with the pot lid, I couldn't forget the glimpse he had given me of a view that was light and rested on a color I'd never seen in nature. After he came, I couldn't keep a mind of things. Even the chores I normally liked, watering the chickens, chopping back the galloping weeds, didn't keep my attention, and I made careless mistakes, spilling kerosene and leaving the lamp out overnight, the kinds of mistakes my sisters made. Me, the sharpest of Pa's girls. I dawdled and sighed and drifted, thinking shapeless white and blue thoughts, and later when Mama asked where the, ho- where the eggs were, I couldn't tell her. I was unsettled, as nervy as a horse when a big storm is coming in. The horizon remained placid, without new wind or the purple blur of thunderheads, but that steadiness was no comfort. Something had twisted me and to burrowed down, and now I scratched and twisted, miserable in my skin. Pa could see my distraction. I was never able to hide anything from the man if he wanted to look, and ever since the dinner with Reverend Farley, he kept me close to hand. The Tuesday after the Reverend's visit, he took me out to the barn. Doing chores with him meant I didn't have to make dinner, but it also meant Pa had something he wanted to say, so it was hard to know whether I felt freed or trapped. Did you call me out here because you're wanting a piece of meat tonight that's cooked all the way through? I said, you're a stubborn thing. He handed me the flat tin of barn salve that we used on all the cow's cuts and wounds. The salve had been white once, but it had aged to a thick yellow and smelled like bad cooking fat laced with kerosene. The barn stank whenever we opened the tin, and this summer we had to open it a lot. Both our cows were eaten up by biting flies, their rumps pinked with weeping, crusted sores. The cows could hardly stand to be touched, even to be milked, and their lowing was full of long misery. They they were normally sweet-tempered animals, but in a minute one of them would try to nip us while we kept dabbing on the sticky ointment. Pa said, you could make things easy, but you won't do it. What's easy? The smell of the greasy salve stuck to me. The cow twitched her flat rump and huffed irritably. Girls half your age can manage to make a loaf of bread that doesn't come up gummy in the middle. It's a knack. I haven't got it. I think we can all see that much. He reached across the cow's back to flick a bit of salve from my face. Girl, what do you want? If he'd looked mean or angry, I would have known what to say but his face was stony. Mostly, I was aware of the rich, sweet smell of the cows, the tang of manure, and the acrid medicine that was smeared halfway up to my elbows now. I like to sew, I said. I went to town last week. Jack Platt asked after you. His daddy's spread is bigger than this one. Everybody's spread was bigger than ours. Pa knew that I knew that. My hand shook a little when I said, what did you tell him? I told him you were tolerable. You don't help a girl much, do you? I don't see as that's my job. Jack Platt's daddy's 300 acres spilled between us. The Platts had a house with a window, and it occurred to me that it would be a fine thing to look outside of a house during the daylight. Pa said, what should I have told him, Nell? That you spent half an evening looking at a pot lid as if it could tell you something? No, don't tell him that. Jack will come to see you if I don't stop him. That's what people do, I think, 
They come to see each other. I'm only going to ask you this once. Is Jack what you want? He let me take my time. Jack was a new thought. Marriage was a new thought, though it shouldn't have been. Just last month, the Reverend read out Nassine and Ernold's bands while Nassine sat like the Queen of Sheba in the front row, thinking on babies, Ernold's wood frame house, and a new ringer washer. She wasn't but a month older than me. Unbidden images tumbled through my head. Berlinda and Mal Marlon Mallory ran off to Hutchinson to get married, and for months after they came back, Berlinda told about the hotel there and the wide streets. No one has called on May yet, I said unsteadily. There's no law. It wouldn't be easy here, just her and Viola. May was already 17, but little Vi was only nine and not handy. We'll manage. Listen up now. If you don't want Jack, I'll tell him. Mrs. Jack Platt. Jack was shorter than me, with bandy legs and hair so curly that we used to say bah to him in school. He had stopped school at 12 rather than boarding in Hayes for high school, but I saw the Platts at church and in town. A person had to put his mind to it to disappear in Mercer County. Like everyone, I knew that Jack's mother was a tyrant, his father a quiet man who stayed out of his wife's way. Even at church, Oris Platt could find a way to stay on the other side of the building from her, a skill we all admired. Jack favored his mother, and I wondered whether that should worry me. His lamb-like curls were hers, and his strut, and his quick, cutting words when he was exercised. But he had spent once the bed out in a flower flat on his belly under an outhouse, coaxing two kittens to come to him. He must have washed them, because when he brought them home in a basket, they were fluffy as kittens on a greeting card, and he talked his mother into keeping them. I hadn't seen any of this, but everybody knew the story. I would learn different stories, other ones, if I lived in the Platt place. He's nice enough, I said. I won't stop you, Pa said. I just want you to think. What's to think about? Once you decide, you've decided. You can't come up for air later and say, God, that was a mistake. So think. Is this what you want out of your future? Future's a hard thing to see. I presume that Pa was thinking about me squinting across the top of the pot lid. I could still see that wavery line, full of possibility. You better can, he said. Did you, when you courted Mama? The rough bristles of the cow's tail whipped me under the ear. That'll be a welt, Pa said. He spread more salve, working the clear ointment down into the little craters that oozed with their own clear juice. Your mother is a good woman. I couldn't ask for a better one. She knows how to stretch a nickel, and she doesn't hanker after what she can't have. He wasn't saying anything but the truth. Pa and I were the hankerers. She's never raised her voice to, to me, even when she ought should have, he said. When I called on her, folks said she was sweet as a honey cake. I went back to go sore I'd already dabbed. Pa wasn't much on sweets, even May's good pies. What I'm about to say is not a complaint, you hear me? I esteem your mother. I won't hold with anything else. Now that Pa had stopped touching her backside, Dixie was placid, munching the oats he put out for her. It's a fine thing to share your days with a person. That's what a marriage is, sharing. You share a home and a place. You share children. But your mother and I don't see the world alike. When I look over the fields, I see fences that need fixing, the place where the seed washed out. She doesn't see those things. I know that, I said. I'm trying to tell you something. What do you know about Jack? Same as you. Their place will support another mouth and his mother's a pistol. Not much, he said. Where else am I going to go? You're still a youngster. Wait for a feller who you know you like. Guess I'll be waiting for Reverend Farley to come back. Guess you won't either. Man who lives riding circuit isn't looking for a wife to support, and his jokes were no good. Then I guess I'd better let Jack Platt come to call. 
since I'm not interested in being a spinster lady. As if it had been waiting for just this moment, my mind produced a list of Mercer County bachelors, Sam Wynn, whose last wife had died in childbirth at age 20 and who held girls too tight at dances, Karth Noller, who lived in town and ran the post office along with the funeral home, the scattering of ranchers who came in for feed looked and worked over girl names and they used for livestock. In that company, Jack looked fine. There's no call to rush, he said. You're still half a child. This was the first time Pa had indicated I was anything but all a child, and hearing him say so brought feeling up in me, something hard, screwed tight. Everyone in Mercer County knew his pride in me, his middle girl, no bigger than a minute but still a fire pop. At every funeral or covered supper, people recalled the time a man from the bank came to see Pa. I wasn't much out of diapers and didn't know what they were talking about, but I could see Pa sitting at the edge of the bench like a shamed schoolboy. So I crept up behind the man and bit him on the leg. The man yanked away from me and Pa whooped, saying he'd meant to warn the man about the Feist dog. For a long time after that, he called me Feist when he was feeling good, though he'd let that drop away lately. The cow ointment stung my eyes. I said, I'm not after staying on the smallest ranch in Kansas. I'd like to see something fresh for a change. He put on a grin I'd never seen before. It looked bashful, and it made the feeling in me tighten even more, like a jar lid twisted till it breaks. He said, it's not enough for you to see your old pa? That's the first thing I want to stop seeing, I said, hating the words the second they flew from my mouth. They were not what I meant to say. There were no words for what I meant to say. Pa's face slammed shut. He pitched the open tin of cow ointment at me. Its top side stuck itself square against my nose and eyes, and for a panicky second, all I could breathe was old, sticky fat and kerosene. Next week, Pa was saying as I shook the tin off, tomorrow, I won't have your mother living with a child who doesn't know respect. Is there a rag? I said. The ointment was all over my face and spattered onto my neck and shoulders. I was struggling not to gag. The dress was done for. He threw a feed sack at me so hard the tie strings whipped my ear. Mouth on you like an outhouse. No gratitude. I rubbed the burlap over my face, scraping the clots of ointment that we would need again back into the tin. I'm guessing Horace Platt doesn't throw cow medicine at anybody. I wouldn't bet against his wife's throwing arm, though. Looks like you'll be finding out. You can write a letter and tell us all. Are you going to lock me out of the house tonight? I should. But you'll have a home here as long as you want it. And you don't want it. I stood wiping myself clean until Pa left the barn, the cow making contented grunts. There didn't seem anything wrong with Jack. I was 15 years old. Thank you. I'm going to read um, three poems from my new book. Then I'm going to read a few poems that are kind of in the background to that book. Um, this is a book called Shut Up, You're Fine, um, Poems for Very, Very Bad Children. Shut up, you're fine is what your parents, or at least mine, said after they hit you. And, you know, it is always an interesting thing to say because... If they hit you, they don't want you to be fine. Therefore, well, you get the logic problem there. Um, another thing that my parents would say was, you're not hurt, you just think you are. <laughs> Which, you know, you had a lot of time to meditate on while you were... Um, <laughs> the, um, anyway, the first poem in the book 
um, had it coming. That was another thing your parents, my parents would say after they hit, hit you, they'd say, you had it coming. Had it coming. Hush now, don't cry, my wayward son. You couldn't see you were becoming someone who'd study manual arts, rough carpentry, not even plumbing. Mother smelled and father too, the cigarettes that you've been bumming. We searched beneath your bed and found the dirty books that you've been thumbing. And what about your so-called friends, the criminals and thugs you're chumming around with at the mini-mart? They hang with you and think they're slumming. And as we yelled, you shrugged and snorted, eyeballs rolling, fingers drumming. You sighed, picked up your guitar, tuned, retuned it, started strumming. Your father cursed and slammed the door. I slapped you till your head was humming. Hush now, don't cry, my wayward son. You little shit, you had it coming. And then you can see the kid. This is Barry Moser's illustration of the kid who um, just got hit. The, um, um, I always, one of the other things you have to do when your kids kiss your grandmother goodnight, and it's always, you know, they... I don't know about your grandmother, but my mind should shave. We won't talk about that. Um, kiss grandma goodnight. The old ones smell funny. They don't smell of gum, pie, or pink candy, but gardenia and mum. They smell of white flowers, huge dying flowers, and sometimes gin, which kills the long hours. They insist that you kiss their shrunken gray lips before they hand over licorice whips. They'll sulk all alone and guzzle cheap gin or talk to dead husbands to feel loved again. But pucker and kiss them, act like a chum, lie that you love them, they're what you'll become. There's not a lot of comfort in these forms. Well, actually, I think I'm going to stop with those and give you a taste of um, where these poems come from. Um, I actually got started on them while I was reading. John John Hollander, the poet and critic, has an essay on um, Robert Louis Stevenson's children poems, which I'd always hated when I was a kid. They seemed so sappy. And... um, so I was reading that essay about the same time that I got one of those internet joke lists of children's books that will never be written. The Little Sissy Who Snitched. Daddy Drinks Because You Cry. And I thought, well, maybe you could take that South Park, Beavis and Butthead, Malcolm in the Middle mentality and slam them up against children's rhymes. So I wrote a couple of these things. I was vaguely aware of, not really clear in my head, though I'd read some of these um, Edward Lear poems like, there was a young lady whose nose was so long that it reached to her toes. So she hired an old lady whose conduct was steady to carry that wonderful nose. 
There was a young lady of Troy whom several large flies did annoy. Some she killed with a thump, some she drowned at the pump, and some she took with her to Troy. These were written about 1848, about the time when had finished the first edition of Leaves of Grass. So, and yet they sound pretty darn contemporary. There was a young lady of Clare who was sadly pursued by a bear. When she found she was tired, she abruptly expired, that unfortunate young lady of Clare. The, um, so if there's a theme here, it's going to be um, children and acts of violence. The, um, there are, let me see, there's this great book. Um, this one, is, the, it's, there's two books in one here. This is called Ruthless Rhymes for Heartless Homes and More Ruthless Rhymes for Heartless Homes. The first edition was 1896, I believe. The second one, 30 or 40 years later. Uh, and you, the stern parent, father heard his children scream, so he threw them in the stream, saying as he drowned the third, children should be seen, not heard. Calculating Clara. O'er the rugged mountain's brow, Clara threw the twins she nursed and, one, and remarked, I wonder now which will reach the bottom first. Mr. Jones. There's been an accident, they said. Your servant's cut in half. He's dead. Indeed, said Mr. Jones, and please send me the half that's got my keys. The, um, now, one of the poems in that had, um, no, we got, we got to wait, um, because we got to do Hilaire Balak. Balak um, wrote cautionary tales for children. Um, in one of the early cautionary tales, um, what is the name of the boy? Oh, the boy who... Um, I don't forget what he did, but um, the lion ate him all but his head. There is his head. The, um, this was um, Edward Gorey, the great Edward Gorey, redid this, um, re-illustrated the Balak, and we get the same boy. Same head floating around, around now on, on the page. The... Um, um, the only Balak poem I'm going to read to you is Henry King. The title is Henry King, who chewed bits of string and was early cut off in dreadful agonies. The chief defect of Henry King was chewing little bits of string. Do you do this when you're a kid, Jason? Do you ever chew string? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I shouldn't admit that I did. Rubber bands, you ever chew a rubber band? All right, see, these are warnings to children. Actually, if you look them up in Wikipedia, they're discussed under cautionary tales. Oh, I've now got to back up. 
The chief defect of Henry King was chewing little bits of string. At last he swallowed some which tied itself in ugly knots inside. Physicians of the utmost fame were called at once, but when they came, they answered as they took their fees, there is no cure for this disease. Henry will very soon be dead. His parents stood about his bed, lamenting his untimely death, when Henry, with his latest breath, cried, Oh, my friends, be warned by me that breakfast, dinner, lunch, and tea are all the human frame requires. With that, the wretched child expires. Now, um, when they reissued um, Ruthless Rhymes for Heartless Homes, one of the poems in here was of um, Little Billy. Now, um, Little Billy, I, I didn't, I meant to mark Little Billy and I forgot to do it. Um, it is, but um, Little Billy grew into these anonymous poems that were popular. I haven't quite found the date for these because they're, they're anonymous, but they're called Little Willies, the Little Willie poems. And um, Little Willie, wearing sashes, fell in the grate and was burned to ashes. Wearing his new sausage, fell in the grate and was burned to ashes. Now, though it grows very chilly, no one wants to poke up Willie. You, you know that one? The, um, well, in this book it was Willie. Well, those spun out and became the Little Willies. Um, Little Willie, mean as hell, threw his sister in the well. Mama said, when drawing water, gee, it's hard to raise a daughter. <laughs> in the family drinking well, Willie pushed his sister Nell. She's dead all right, the water killed her. Now they drink it through a filter. <laughs> and... Um, you know, the rule of these seems to be they have to have Little Willie mentioned by name and someone dies. Well, we don't exactly see Grandma die, but she's going to. Little Willie, full of glee, put radium in Grandma's tea. Now he thinks it's quite a lark to see her shining in the dark. Uh, um, so there's the background for... Um, some of the things that I was trying to do. And you can see that um, they're very British. The, the Little Willies start to become American, um, but they have that droll British um, difference. I thought, well, I was hoping that mine were more American. Um, this is the cow. Did you ever think about, you know, I had a cousin that was in 4-H and he raised his cow. I think the cow was named Whitey. And Somehow, as he got up every morning at 6 to groom Whitey, um, and I think Whitey won first or second prize at the, at the county fair, and then suddenly Whitey was gone, because you know what they do. They auction the winners off immediately, and then, well, let's just say, well, Whitey gets butchered quickly thereafter. This was a shock to my cousin, and apparently I, somebody's told me that this was traditional, that you tell the kids that it's not their cow, 
you're eating, but they swapped Whitey for somebody else's cow. (laughs) And this worked really well until one day my uncle, with a mouthful of Whitey, um, looked looked at my cousin and said, Damn, you did a good job raising this cow. (laughs) And there was much screaming and running away from the table and slamming of doors and crying for a while. But um, the cow. I love the red cow with all of my heart. She's gentle when pulling my cherry red cart. We take her rich milk and swallow it down with nothing it's white with chocolate brown. When she grows too feeble to give us fresh cream, we'll slit her red throat, hang her from a beam, and pull out her insides to throw to the dogs, just as we do when we slaughter the hogs. We've now owned six cows that I can remember. We'll drain them and gut them, skin and dismember, package and label them, and stock up the freezer. We all love beefsteak from baby to geezer. Tossed on the grill, the bloody steaks sputter. As a last grateful tribute, so humble we stutter. We offer up thanks with a reverent mutter, then slather her chops with her own creamy butter. Um, also, when I was a kid, I was raised on stories of well, folk tales, and um, about witches. So when my parents took me to meet my um, um, great-grandmother, I knew what I was seeing. It was a witch. Now, my great-grandmother had diabetes back in the mid-50s. I don't know, if, did they have insulin then? Well, if they did, it was too late for her. And... Um, she was. She lost one arm. She lost one leg and one eye, and I was a carefully raised little child. I'd never seen anything like this, and I was terrified. Now, one does not feel good about this, thinking back um, at that. But on the other hand, you know, I was kind of excited to see a witch too. Witch. We drove into the country, way down a red dirt track then stumbled up a path and bushwhacked to a shack. She only had one arm. She only had one leg. She only had one eye, a bright red Easter egg. Come here and hug your granny, the old witch squawked at me. Go on, my mother whispered and shoved me with her knee. Did she have an understanding to give me to the witch. I heard her roll on stilt skin. My face began to twitch. Come to your loving granny, the old witch shrilly said. Again, my mother shoved me, and this time smacked my head. I inched away from mom and dad. I swore I'd always hate them. The witch smelled of used grease, mildew and mentholatum. I struggled hard. I fought her. I couldn't break her grip. Who'd think it'd be so easy to make a wheelchair tip?
this didn't actually happen. You don't have to be upset. <laughs> Though it would have been cool if it had happened. The, um, another, um, I, I've since found out that um, this game that my father played was a game that a lot of other parents played, which he played being dead. He would lie down on the bed and he wouldn't move. And at first you thought, oh, he's asleep. And so you'd tickle him and he wouldn't move. And then you'd get a little more aggressive. And um, if you think about it, there's no way that this game can end well. Because either he's going to win and convince you he's dead, or you're going to do something so awful that will make him move and prove that he's alive. There's no way this can end well. Um, I've since found out that apparently other fathers do this or have done this with their kids. Um, so the poem is called Playing Dead. Our father liked to play a game. He played that he was dead. He took his thick black glasses off and stretched out on the bed. He wouldn't twitch and didn't snore or move in any way. He didn't even seem to breathe. We asked, are you okay? We tickled fingers up and down his huge, pink, stinky feet. He didn't move. He lay as still as last year's parakeet. We pushed our fingers up his nose and wiggled them inside. Next, we peeled his eyelids back. Are you okay, we cried. I really thought he might be dead and not just playing possum because his eyeballs didn't twitch when I slid my tongue across him. He's dead, we sobbed, but to be sure, I jabbed him in the jewels. He rose like Jesus from the dead, though I don't think Jesus drools. His right hand lashed both right and left. His left hand clutched his scrotum, and the words he yelled I know damn well. I'm way too young to quote him. And here's Barry's drawing of dad being punched in the jewels. And the, um, now I want to say it's only eight months till Christmas. And this is the perfect gift for any boy between the ages of 12 and 120. The, um, or troublesome nephews that are a little disturbed and you want to push them just far enough that they can be hospitalized. The, um, did, you ever um, did you ever see dogs and think they were playing leapfrog? Rover. Rover is such a clumsy dog. We love to laugh at Rover. He topples in the toilet bowl and somersaults in clover. He's crazy to play leapfrog now, and the neighbor's dog loves Rover. But Rover's always getting stuck before he's halfway over.
um, you ever see, well, you know, you're looking at the squirrels out on the power lines, and there's always poems about how graceful the squirrels are. Now, if you're a gardener, you hate squirrels. I mean, they're just, the famous line is, rodents with bushy tails, rats with bushy tails. I like to think of them as rodents with good PR. Um, they're, um, if you look at them close, they're rats, right? The circus and the trees. I love to watch the gray squirrels leap from limb to leafy limb, tumbling like furry acrobats, and every tree their gym. The oak limbs are their trampoline, and their trapeze the pines. They stroll like tightrope walkers up the looping power lines, and sometimes they gnaw through a line, exploding as it arcs, and lighting up the evening sky, cascading down as sparks. And there's Barry's drawing of the squirrel being electrocuted. I think this is maybe the funniest drawing in the book. Um, well, except for the one with the tooth fairy we're getting our head squeezed. But I'm not going to show you that. You have to buy the book to see the tooth fairy um, getting her head squeezed. Um, Why I Love Ruby. This is a poem for um, children of divorce. When mom dated lawyers, they showed me their briefs, and the preacher she dated held secret beliefs. We knelt by the bed, and he asked the Almighty to forgive us our sins and send mom a silk nighty. Now mom's dating Ruby. What wonderful luck. We roar around town in her half-ton truck. We wash it together, polish the chrome, and she doesn't touch me when she drives me home. When a biker downtown called me a fairy, her face turned as red as mom's Bloody Mary. She rolled up her sleeve, she rolled up the sleeves of her plaid cut-off shirt, kneed the guy's balls, rubbed his face in the dirt. Not till she looked, not till he looked up did I see it was dad. He called her a dyke and made it sound bad. Though the preacher once told me her sins defile her, I love her spiked boots and adore her Rottweiler. It's hard to come up with rhymes for Rottweiler. The, um, did you think about being dead when you were a kid? Or was it, I assume it wasn't just me. Um, now, when did you first... Now, there's a lot of you folks I don't know. Um, you in the way back, did you realize you were going to die? Not, not now. I mean, this isn't... I'm not breaking any news to you, am I? That early, the um, I guess um, that that does seem early, doesn't it? Um, they what are we? Uh, when my I had pet turtle, and the turtle died. I think it ran away actually, but my mom told me it died. So your turtle ran. <laughs> I think you're still in denial. The um, uh, the um, but um, I don't know if I guess I, I for some reason I guess I always knew this. Now of course if you if you raise Southern Baptist, 
Um, there's, there's a man that stands in front of you and reminds you once a week for about an hour that you're going to die, so it's a little hard to miss, uh, miss the news. Um, this is a poem called, I Think of Being in the Grave. I think of being in the grave. I think of my tight coffin. I think of living underground and feeling my skin soften. My guts will swell until they pop. My black eye holes will stare. The white bones hidden by my skin will dry and crack in air. When I am done imagining, I pray a long, long prayer so God will know I'm happy here, at least compared to there. Uh, there's nothing like death to make you kind of happy about where you are. Which reminds me, I didn't do a suicide poem. I wonder if I should. No, that's probably pushing it a little too hard. The, um, I'm going fin- to go ahead and finish. Um, I will show you Minnie the guinea pig. Minnie's worried because her owner, Fat Johnny, is on a diet. I'll just point that out. The, um, when I'm going to read um, the poem, is this the last, if it's not the last, yes, yeah, the last poem in the book. Um, it faces that uncomfortable family situation that I'm sure you've all had when your bedridden grandpa asked you to kill him. Okay, maybe we, it never happened to me, but um, I'm assuming that it's happened to someone sometime. And um, this one has a singing refrain. When granddad says, please kill me, he can't go into his mouth, and since the stroke he drools and sings those dirty army songs about the family jewels, he tells you of his sores and tries to make you look. I don't know, I amused myself with that one. The, um, did you have, like, I did have a grandparents who would like to show you their scars, their operation scars. So you remember, do you remember there's that videotape of Lyndon Johnson with his appendix pulling up his shirt and showing this appendix scar? Um, and everybody was so appalled. And I, I was thinking, I thought all, all old people did that, you know? So I wasn't surprised. um, um, He tells you of his sores and tries to make you look. He tells you all his friends are dead and he resents their luck. When granddad says, please kill me, you mustn't help him die. No matter how he begs and pleads and tries to tell you why. No matter he's incontinent and when he pees, he bleeds. Just look him in the bleary eye, deny him what he needs. You can lay a knife beside him and tell him what it's for, but you cannot hold it to his throat and then complete the chore. You can prop pills on his pillow, fetch water by the court, but you cannot help him swallow them, though he's on life support. Court and life support pleased me, I'll admit. When granddad says, please kill me, you mustn't help him die. No matter how he begs and pleads and tries to tell you why. No matter he's incontinent and when he pees he bleeds. Just look him in the bleary eye, deny him what he needs. You can hand granddad the gun when you're a little bigger. You can even click the safety off, but you mustn't pull the trigger. 
But if you find a plastic bag pulled down across his nose, feel free to shut the bedroom door and leave on tippy toes. When granddad says, please kill me, you mustn't help him die, no matter how he begs and pleads and tries to tell you why. No matter he's incontinent, and when he pees, he bleeds. Now, Jason's joining me here. <laughs> Just look him in the bleary eye, deny him what he needs. And then for the last verse, yes, when granddad says, please kill me, you mustn't help him die, no matter how he begs and pleads and tries to tell you why. Thank you. I hope I haven't appalled you, <laughs> but, but have entertained you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-uh. <sighs> and, I brought, and I brought my cool children's books. I've got um, Strumpel Peter. Um, I didn't even read the German, um, Shock-Headed Peter. Um, and these other books that you can look at, the, the, um, the Twelve Terrors of Christmas by um, Gorey, John Updike and Edward Gorey, the um, Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, and, um, anyway, and, and, the, and the Big Gory, which we didn't even talk about, um, from the Gashly Crumb Tiny. So if you, if you want to look at any of these, I brought them. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. I, I don't think we're appalled. I think we're um, having a good rainy day. Thanks to you. Thanks to your reading, too, Aaron. That was really wonderful. Thanks to you all for coming out. It's good to see some people in the crowd and you're invited back. We're here every Thursday from 3 to 4. Thanks again.